G'day everyone, Sam here. I've been thinking a lot about the common themes that keep recurring on the woodlife, about the importance of sleep, importance of exercise, importance of eating real food. And I, and I love the fact that these absolute keys are continually reinforced in different ways by the experts that we speak to. But I also want to dive deeper into some of these to really understand them on a scientific level and I think have more practical tips of, okay, I kind of get it now, but what can I do about it? Today's expert is going to blow your mind when it comes to the importance of us spending less time on our phones and most importantly, how we do that or how we get our kids to do that. So if you're a parent or you know that you spend too much time, but the whole digital detox thing is this extreme thing that's not really going to work for you, you have to stick around. I'm going to hand on heart say it's probably the best chat we've had on The Woodlife. It's with the incredible Dr. Christy Goodwin. That's coming up next. Then we're going to talk incidental exercise. That's all today on The Woodlife. We have had many guests that are in the wellness space on The Woodlife over the last year and a half, and it's interesting how often their checklist of five or ten things to improve your wellness comes up, and one of those things is inevitably to reduce screen time. So I've gone and done some research, and I've discovered an absolute guru in this space, and I'm thrilled to welcome her to The Woodlife today. Dr. Christy Goodwin, welcome to The Woodlife how big an issue is this? What do you specialise in? And then we'll get to it eventually. Most importantly, what can we do about it? Well, thank you for this opportunity. And I'm going to raise my guilty hand and acknowledge, even though I research this, even though I write and speak about this, I find it really hard, if not impossible sometimes, to tame my tech habits. This is a universal dilemma. Whether you're a parent, an adult, a kid, I often call our kids screenagers, the reality is we all get sucked into the digital vortex. <laughs> and isn't it funny as a parent, you know, I've got three little ones, uh, you know, five, four, nearly two, and you just, you tell yourself you're not going to let that happen yeah. and you feel like you're parenting well and they're still doing heaps of adventures and outdoor activities and yep. uh creative tasks that don't involve screen times, but it, it does. It, it still infiltrates your life yeah. and, and it sneaks up on you. And uh, the term you used, vortex, I mean, isn't it true? Yeah. You jump, you go down a social media rabbit hole for what feels like two minutes and you've been there for yeah. 45. It's, it's yeah. scary. And it's not our fault. You know, the tech that we all use professionally and personally, but more so our leisure tech, you know, social media, group chats, multiplayer video games, the people creating these technologies have intentionally used a whole lot of persuasive design techniques to get us hooked on their platforms. You know, the fact that notifications come to us. I often say we have ancient Paleolithic brains. We have brains that are biologically designed to go and hunt, forage and get information. 
But when information hmm. is constantly being thrust at us, it tricks our brain into thinking, well, this is a, a potential stressor coming to me. I must be in a heightened alert state. This could be a potential danger. So even though we know our phone is vibrating or flashing, our brain can't differentiate between a real threat and a perceived threat. And so we click on the notification, we pick up the phone. Um, the fact that our notification bubble by default is usually red. You know, red is a psychological trigger for danger and urgency. The fact that there's a metric saying you've got, you know, 14 unread WhatsApp messages draws us in. Um, you know, the fact in on YouTube and Netflix and Stan, all the streaming services, one clip rolls into the next, the, the autoplay feature. You know, we used to have mm. to enable that, but it's now a default setting. So there's so many clever, um, persuasive ways that, that draw us in and our kids. And the average Australian, it is estimated, will spend 17 years of their life on their phones. Wowzers. 33% of our waking hours are sucked into that digital vortex alone, let alone our laptops, our tablets, our desktop computers. This will change with artificial intelligence and wearable technologies. We are really spending a huge amount of time. And I often say, if we don't take back control, if we're not intentional, and it's not an anti-tech, you know, I, I don't believe in digital detoxes. It's not about digital amputation for our kids. You know, they're outdated, antiquated approaches. But if we aren't intentional, if we do not take back control, technology will and does rob us of our two most important human resources, our time and our attention. Mm. And that's why I'm worried. Wow. 33% of our awake time, 33% uh, of our Scary, awake isn't life. It? That, isn't yeah, it? it actually took me a minute to let that sink in. I, I mean, that is so beautifully articulated. I, I, guess, I guess the first place my head went was I totally agree that we have to take back control. But even when I try and either do it myself or teach discipline to others around switching those notifications off and making it a bit more of a, you know, you, or you turn your phone off or whatever it is, you then just turn it back on to be absolutely bombarded. I'd love your advice on how best, you know, just focusing on reducing, yeah. I guess, that that bombardment of, of stimuli Where's the first place you start with people? Yes, and you're exactly right. This is why I don't recommend doing a digital detox or anything really restrictive because right. the research tells us in terms of digital mm. detoxes, they create exactly what you just described, a binge and a purge cycle. We go offline for three days, but we come back Monday morning and we are digitally bombarded by the DMs, the emails, the WhatsApp messages, and the detox doesn't actually create long-term sustainable habits. A study was done where they compared two groups of people, one group who were asked to reduce their social media use by an hour a day. The other group went on a full digital detox. They fully restricted their use. And what the study conclusively found was that those people that went on the full digital detox reverted back to their screen habits before the, the digital detox was imposed. But the group that just reduced their social media time by an hour a day was spending four months after the study 30 minutes less on social media. So the research tells us that cutting it down or cutting it back is better than cutting it out. Mm. Um, because as we know, as humans, anything that's fully restrictive um, doesn't often lead to long-term change. So what I often say to people is we've got to make our tech less sticky, less appealing, because, you know, it is so psychologically appealing. Um, is it as simple as putting your phone somewhere where you cannot see it? 
Research tells us that even if our phone is on silent and face down, if it's still in our line of sight, it drops our performance, our cognitive performance by about 10%. So put bluntly, seeing your phone makes you about 10% dumber. I can't be any more direct than that. It literally is a brain drain. Some of, even if we're not picking it up, not opening it, some of our attention has gone there. So is it putting it in a bag, leaving it in the glove box in the car? Um, Is it putting it in another room when you want to be fully present in those moments? Is it turning it to grayscale? I'm the first to say Instagram is really boring in black and white. It really is. Um, is it logging out of your apps on your smartphone? One of the reasons that we we go down that digital vortex is because there's no friction. Now with facial recognition, you don't even have to enter your passcode. You can simply hold the device up and off you go down that, that rabbit hole. Um, so logging out, you know, most of us now have digital dementia. We can't remember any information because we're just being constantly peppered. When we can't remember the the password, it may create a little bit more Mm. friction. You know, taking your tech temptations off the home screen of your phone. Um, Controlling your notifications. As you said, it's really hard to resist that. So I have three golden rules with notifications. One, disable all non-essential ones. Um, Two, we can now bundle or batch when our notifications come to us. So rather than them dribbling in throughout the day and distracting us, we can nominate what time or times of the day we want the WhatsApp notifications, we want our Teams notifications or email notifications. And the third one is create VIP lists so that when you put your phone on focus or do not disturb mode, they're called different things on different platforms, everybody else gets blocked apart from those people on that list. Everybody else gets blocked, but they can get through. So I think there are things that we can do, but I am the first to say it's hard. Like it, we are fighting a monumental battle in terms of our time and attention. You know, it's one of those things I'm sure many people are like, I absolutely know that what Christy is saying is right, but God, that scares me. If this is you, and my guess is it is most of you, and I'm putting my hand right up in the air, and I love your honesty too in this, Christy, I'm going to find this seriously hard. I have a massive issue here, massive. Yeah. I mean, I've put in probably 10% of the little rules or little protocols that you've spoken about already, and I've already found it's helped a little bit, but there's so much more that I can do. And I I loved the term, we need to take back control. Let's face it, we're slaves to our screens and it's it's no accident. As I said, yeah. there's a whole lot of persuasive design techniques. The other reason we often, and our kids in particular, our teens, you know, why social media or multiplayer video games and group chats are so appealing is that our more our leisure than our sort of work and productivity technologies, but our leisure technologies tap into our three most basic psychological drivers. Our most basic human need is connection. We are hardwired for relational connection. We want to feel like we belong. This is why social media, group chats, emails, Teams messages, Slack messages, multiplayer video games are so popular. Our second need is to feel competent. And in the online world, we don't have to often exert a lot of hard work and we get to feel competent. I can triage my inbox. I can reply to the messages. For young people, it's how many fortnight battles they've won, um, how many social media vanity metrics they get on their posts. And the third need that we have as humans is control. We want to feel like we have some autonomy. And the online world gives us a perceived, although I'll say false, sense that we're in control. And so a couple of years ago, a (laughs) mum told me this powerful story, and I have never forgotten. 
she told me that she picked her daughter up from school one day and her mum turned and said to her mum, how much do you earn per hour, mum? And her mum thought, wow, my daughter is finally, you know, ambitious. She said, look, sweetheart, I earn a salary. I'd have to do some calculations. Let me get back to you. She tucked her daughter into bed that night and she was tucking her in. She said, sweetheart, I've calculated my hourly rate. This is what it is. Why do you ask? And her young daughter turned to her mum and said, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. Yeah, ouch. And even if you don't have kids, I think many of us would recognise that our time and our attention are being taken away by this. I don't want us, and I know this sounds melodramatic, but the harsh reality is if we are giving up 17 years of our life just to our phones, that's an inordinate amount of time. There's certainly some functionality there. I'm not denying that. But if we were brutally honest with ourselves, for many of us, that's a huge amount of time that we will never get back. So a couple of things. That, I mean, that story wows us. I nearly burst into tears. My, my, I've had a couple of occasions, or probably, probably 10, where my kids have said, Dad, and I haven't heard them because I've been glued to my phone, and then Dad, put down your phone. And, you know, they're, they're very little. So when that happens, it's like, whoa. I don't notice that you notice until you say that thing, but, God, you do notice. And then those three needs, connected, competent, control, because the connected one's interesting because I have a teenage daughter and Mm. it's that desire to feel connected through social media, but it's just not a real connection. Like I just... It's not. It's not replacing real connections, real friendships, real human interaction. And it, so it's just this, this fake. It's I mean, a substitute. It's a, yeah, yeah. It's, but, it, but it's, a, it's a horrible substitute. And, I mean, and, and we have to be careful. We can't demonise it because for our young people, yeah. the online world really is their primary conduit for connection. But the harsh reality is that the research tells us that any sort of text-based communication does not, even though we are connecting, does not create a hormone called oxytocin. So oxytocin is the social bonding, sometimes referred to as the love hormone. We get it when we're in close physical proximity with others. Their brain biologically has to produce this this hormone. What we also know is that text-based communications make the brain produce cortisol, the stress hormone. Two ways that people often are totally unaware of that our our tech habits can make us feel stressed without even realising it is that when we're on any screen, we do not sigh as much as what we should. Now, as humans, we are biologically designed to sigh while we're awake roughly every five minutes. It's a a natural biological mechanism that's built in (laughs) to our biology um, that helps us regulate our stress response. We do it really subtly. It's two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth natural way to regulate our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. But when we are looking at a small surface area, our phone, our tablet, our laptop, our computer, we do not sigh anywhere near as much. What does this mean? We are often in a sympathetic nervous system state. We're in an elevated stress state just by looking at our screens. Another one, you will find this one hopefully interesting too, is that when we have a very narrow gaze, so when our eyes are converging, looking at our phones, our tablets, our laptops, we, again, trigger the stress response because biologically as humans, we are designed to dilate our gaze. 
We are designed to look at things in the distance as humans. We're not designed for us to adopt a very narrow gaze. So again, when our eyes converge, it triggers that stress response. There must be something, a potential danger or stressor because I've got this very narrow gaze. So think about the hours that all of us, kids, teens and adults, are spending with that narrow gaze and not sighing. We're often really stressed. So those cortisol levels are high and we haven't even started to consider what we're actually doing on the screen. Our tech habits are having a profound impact on us in ways that I don't think we've even started to really digest and consider. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it is like the more you know, the, the more petrifying it is. So I'd love some advice, selfishly, on what you can do with teenagers because, you know, not just my daughter, Evie, but, no, of course. you know, parents with teenagers out there who are must be going, oh, my God, I'm, I'm totally at a loss of what to do. I'd love some tips, Christy, if you've got any. Yeah. So my three tips for parents are, the big overarching message is that we have to be the co-pilot of the digital plane, not the passenger. Um, and the reason is that the developing brain, the adolescent brain, does not have the architecture that is required to regulate what they do online. Part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, I often say it's like the CEO or the air traffic control system of the brain. It has three <laughs> big jobs. It's impulse control, it's working memory, and it's mental flexibility. So all sort of the higher order thinking skills. It does not fully develop until somewhere in the 20s, late 20s for males, early 20s for females. So it is a parenting impossibility to expect your son or daughter to spend three hours on TikTok, voluntarily turn it off and say, I'm going to go and tidy my bedroom for you, mum or dad. It's just, it's never going to happen. They don't have that impulse control. They don't have working memory. So even though you've repeatedly told them not to look things up, they will still keep looking things up. So we have to be that co-pilot, not the passenger. And to be the co-pilot, I often say we've got to get three Bs right. The first B is that we have to co-establish boundaries with them, not on them. You know, come up with some agreed boundaries. And again, this is not about imposing an agreement. It's about co-constructing with your team. What are some of our parameters, our guardrails? So having more broader conversations beyond how much. What are they doing? When are they using it? Um, you know, is it before school or before they go to sleep? Um, where are they using it? You know, establish your no-go tech zones. Your teenager is much less likely to be sending nudes if it's in the lounge room or on the kitchen counter, much more likely to be doing it in their bedroom or their bathroom. With whom? You know, would you invite a complete stranger to come in and lay down next to your teenager in their bedroom at night? Absolutely not. But we're often inevitably doing that when they've got devices in their room. So the first B is around boundaries. Mm. The second B is around their basic needs. I believe the reason that we have a serious mental health crisis in young people is because of technology, but not the way we all think. We're all quick to wag, point the finger and say it's smartphones and it's social media. It's what they are displacing. Their most basic physical and psychological needs are being displaced and superseded by screens. And the three big ones, their three most basic needs that will optimise their mental health, sleep, physical movement, and connection. And they are all being significantly shaped and I would say sometimes sabotaged by screens. We have to fiercely protect those basic needs. And the third B, the harsh reality is this is one adults really struggle with, boredom. Hmm. Being idle with our thoughts. 
knowing, you know, years ago we, you know, used to order a coffee and you'd talk to the barista or the people waiting outside. Today we pull out our phones. We pull up at a red traffic light. You look around. What are most people often doing? Pulling out those phones. And so the pockets of white space that we used to have, I don't know about you, Sam, but I've never, ever had a great idea in my inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) My ideas come when I'm in the shower, going for a run, going for a swim, in an airplane without Wi-Fi. We used to daydream, but we never have pockets of time to be bored anymore, and neither do our kids. So I say to parents, they're the three Bs, boundaries, basic needs, and boredom. And if we can nail that, our kids can use technology, and we won't have to have all this moral panic and angst that their their tech times are eroding their mental health and and compromising them. But I think we're struggling as adults because we're not being good digital role models ourselves. Like we we are tethered to technology. And so if we're not being good digital role models, the brain has mirror neurons, meaning that we are biologically designed as humans to imitate and copy. Like how can we expect our kids to have really good habits if we are grappling with this? You know, we've got fully developed brain architecture, they don't. So it's, it, again, and I don't want to sound <laughs> sad and sombre, but this is hard. Mm. But we have to, I really think we have to put in place some strategies to be that co-pilot. That is, that is some of the most brilliant advice I've ever had on this show, and I mean that so sincerely. I, oh, thank you. Christy, I could talk to you all day because this is something that I'm fascinated by. I just want to ask you one more thing. If you could give our listeners one digital-based challenge to focus on over the next week or month or or you, you can decide the timeline, what would it be? So one, I often talk about micro habits. So not overhauling everything, not doing anything radical like a digital detox. What's one little lever that you could pull that would yield the biggest return for you? Love it. And what I find for most people is if we can start to avoid bookending our days with our devices. 90% of adults research tells us pick up our phones before we touch our partners first thing in the morning. So we're all guilty of doing this. If we pick up our phones first thing, we trigger the stress response. Our limbic brain, um, the amygdala in particular, it's sort of the emotional hub of our brain, fires up. You know, we only need to see one unkind comment on our social media, an upsetting email, a sad news story, and we're already in this elevated stress response and our feet haven't even touched the floor. So the first 15 minutes, um, if we can keep screen-free. Yeah. Now, the one at night, ideally, we would be having a screen-free period about 60 minutes before we want to go to sleep. Even 30 minutes will make a huge difference. The blue light not only delays the onset of sleep, but we also now know it disrupts the quality of our sleep. If we're on a blue lit device in that 60 minutes before we go to sleep, it will shorten our deep and REM sleep stages. That's critical for memory consolidation. That's critical for us feeling like we've woken up and having had a good rest. So trying to make first 15, and if we can, the last hour, even half an hour, as screen-free as possible, huge impacts on our well-being and our performance. I love that. Chrissy. that's been just such a brilliant chat. I can't thank you enough for your wealth of knowledge and your time today. And I'm sure this wonderful advice is going to bring up some wonderful conversations, lots more questions, and our our Woodlife listeners really are going to be the beneficiaries. So thank you so, so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow. 
Christy was just amazing. I normally write notes when I speak to our experts. I've got more notes scribbled on my desk than I've ever seen before. That we must be connected, competent, and have some form of control. It's so true. And I think reminding ourselves that that doesn't happen in its best form through a screen, although it might be its easiest form, is a really important reminder for all of us. I I hope you enjoyed that chat with Christy because that was just, wow, brilliant. Next, we're going to talk about incidental exercise, which I think is one of the most unsung heroes in developing good habits and taking care of ourselves. I mean, walking is the biggest example I use. Just adding in some walking to what you're already doing can really move the needle significantly when it comes to feeling better and losing weight faster and looking better. But we're going to dive into some quirky and otherwise incidental exercise tips and challenges that I want to throw to you. That's coming up next. So incidental exercise, the beauty of incidental exercise by definition is that we just don't have to overhaul our whole life to make a change. It can just be a small, consistent change, and that's often the best thing to do. Incidental exercise is one of the easiest ways to create these small productive habits. So I've put these into two categories, the no effort category or next to no effort, and the more effort category. I went to a lot of trouble with my thinking of the names of these, but let's start with no effort. Getting out of a chair without using your hands to push you up. So that might be getting off the couch, that might be getting out of the armchair, that might be getting out of your desk chair at work. It activates your core because you've got to balance, you've got to stabilise. It activates your glutes and leg muscles because instead of just cheating, I use the term cheating, you know, assisting with your hands, it's all legs and core. And if it sounds silly, but how many times do we get up and down a day? 20, 30, 50, 100? Depends on the individual, but it all adds up. Let's say every time there's an ad break on your favourite TV show, you walk around the house until your TV show comes back on, or you stand up and sit down without using your hands repeatedly until your TV show comes on, or you hop on the ground and you have a stretch or do a push-up or do some sit-ups. All of this stuff adds up for little bits of effort to make big bits of difference, and that's why I love incidental exercise so much. So number one... Stop using your hands when you get out of your chair. Number two, and this is, I told you we were going to get weird, standing on one leg in a flamingo pose while brushing your teeth. So this is something that you can do twice a day and you do your flamingo pose to, again, engage your core and train your balance. And what's really interesting, particularly as we get older, we don't quite realise how bad our stability in one leg is or how bad our balance is. And the thing with unilateral exercises, and I see this in the gym a lot, we are always protecting our weaker side with our stronger side and simple activities like your toothbrush flamingo will identify where you perhaps need to strengthen or improve your stability. So these are the next to no effort ones. Now we're going to step it up. Stretching at your desk two or three times a day. 
The ones that I like, because I think when we sit for long periods of time, you get very tight through your hips and you get very tight through your upper back. So I love to stand and stretch my arm against the wall or the doorway to stretch out my pecs or the front of my chest. And I love to go into a hip flexor stretch, which is where you take a big stride forward with one leg and push your hips forward. And then I stretch my arms right up in the air. I'm doing it in the studio while I talk to you, looking absolutely ridiculous. But that opens up my hip flexors because they're they're the muscles that have gotten short and tight while I've been in my seated position on the keyboard or in the car or even sometimes on the couch. So they're my favourite two stretches if you're only going to choose two to get up two or three times a day to do from your desk. And then, as I said, a bit more effort, incidental exercise, change your commute. How do you get to work, get the kids to school in the morning? So I have a rule with, with um, Willow and Charlie. We live about six or 700 metres from, from their primary school. If it's not raining, we walk. I don't care how cold it is. I don't care if it's just rained before. I don't care how much of a hurry we're in. We walk to school and it's one of my greatest pleasures. I, I love it. The fact we connect so beautifully. They're wide awake. They're excited about the day. We have the best little chats. It's beautiful. And, it's, and it, it adds up. I do that four or five times a week. There's seven and a half kilometres that I walk that I otherwise would not walk. But those little things, which train station do you get off? Do you get off one earlier? Can you walk to work? Can you bike ride to work? All of these things add up and it can only be a good thing. So there you go, four little incidental exercise challenges that I'm throwing to you. Getting up without using your hands out of your chair continuously, standing on one leg in a flamingo pose to brush your teeth, stretching two or three times a day, and change up your commute. Get those steps up. I'd love to hear how you go with those. As always, there's a link in the show notes. Don't be a stranger. Want to hear from you. Until next week, that's all from The Woodlife.